Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. This is the place to learn how to get through your worst rock bottom and start to embrace adversity. I'm your host, Petra Belzebor. I'm a therapist and a life coach, but my biggest learning is from my own rock bottom. My story includes being raised in a cult, dealing with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and alcoholism. But along the way, I've learned to turn my entire life around to one of success, joy, and fulfillment. So in this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life who've done the same. I'll be teasing out the skills and tools necessary, as well as using my own experience to teach you how to turn your adversity into your biggest advantage. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm so excited today. We've got Jamie Hacker-Hughes, who is a clinical psychologist. We've got a real expert in the house. Um, He's got a background of of leading in the military. Um, He's also part of a religious order. I mean, there were so many things going on here, but I'm so excited to have you. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So um, fill in the blanks for us. Tell us a bit about what you do and what you're passionate about at the moment. Okay, um, I'm probably stretched about four ways, I would say. Uh, um, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I have uh, an independent um, psychology practice in London now. Um, My background is working in the health service and then working in the Ministry of Defence and then back in the health service, but I've been in independent practice for about three years, so that's that's, uh, part of it. Um, before that, actually, comes just being um, being a husband and a father, yeah. uh, and the and the owner of a very small dog that doesn't like me very much. Oh. Um, so so home and family are probably well, they are the most important thing. Um, I've got a son who's away at university. My wife is a priest in the Church of England, and we have a small rescued Cypriot uh, street dog who, as I say, is lovely but doesn't like me very much. Although she does come to work with me. Um, and then, um, uh, apart from that, in May this year, I gave up leading the British Psychological Society, which is the professional association for clinical psychologists, for psychologists uh, in which the Which is a, UK. an impressive role to have. Well, it was a busy role. Uh, it's a three-year role where you are president in the, in the middle of three years. You're president-elect when you're running up, and then you're, you're vice president in, in the third year. But um, we have... 60,000 members, 100 staff, 10 million pound turnover. Um, so it was uh, busy and great. And my job in my three years was restructuring the whole organization from top to bottom, um, which is still ongoing, but um, but it needed doing uh, and it is being done. So, Sounds very so, busy. So, so that'll be the legacy. Um, and then apart from that, um, I said, I, I said three, or, three or four ways. Um, so I gave that up in May. But I'd been elected in January to take over in June as what's called the Minister Provincial of the Third Order of the the European province of the Third Order of the Society of St. Francis. So so, um, Franciscans um, are people who follow St. Francis, who is a 13th century um, Italian who who left a long legacy. There was an Anglican Church of England revival of that in the 20th century. and in exactly the same as the Roman Catholics, we have three orders. We have the first and second order who are monks and nuns. But then we have the third order who are people who are out in the world, married, single, um, in partnerships, lay, uh, ordained, male, female. 
Um, and um, so I now have the job of um, running that. Um, and then apart from that, I also still do some academic stuff. So I, I supervise PhD students and you know, write papers. And this year has been a busy year because I um, had a book, an edited book published and you know, four book chapters and lots of papers and stuff. So, so that, it's a four-way split. So it's family, um, psychology, um, the religious order and some academic stuff. That's, I mean, fascinating, just the, the differences within uh, the, the work that you do. And of course, you bring your whole self to all of it. And what, mm. what people don't know about me is that even though, so I wouldn't say I'm religious, I was raised in a religious cult. So it's had sort of a knock on effect um, for me um, as an adult. So this is fascinating that I'm interviewing you. But um, um, a movie that had a great influence on my life was the old 70s um, Brother, Son, and Sister Moon. Oh, there um, you go. Right? Well, a classic. Yeah, and, I a classic. Used to, and I used to watch it when I was at my lowest ebb, um, thinking, what the hell is my purpose in life? Who am I? And I'd watch it, and I'd just cry and cry, thinking he uh, found his purpose. And um, there was something quite profound uh, in that, that, that journey, that search and the rebellion that he had about how he was raised. Yeah, apps, apps, I, I, and he did, and, and he rebelled. You know, he came from a rich family, uh, uh, family, and he you know, went off to fight and yeah. prisoner, prisoner of war, and developed post-traumatic stress disorder. We now think, yeah, uh, and that makes had sense. Some psychotic episodes along the way. As I well. think that makes sense too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but fascinating. Uh, that movie spoke to me so much. Just about you know, even if nobody gets it, you've just got to go on your path, whatever that is. You absolutely have, and that's absolutely my my philosophy as well. Absolutely love that. Um, so so we really want to know a bit about your journey, and of course the podcast is about adversity and about your story yeah. and all of our stories. So give us a bit of um, context. Uh, just tell us a bit about how you were raised, your your childhood, and you know, did your parents or the education system sort of set you up for life in the real world? Well, it's very interesting, and you, know, you you want to know about adversity. I, I was I was raised in you know, very much a, a middle class uh, British family. My father was a brewer. My they were in the generation where um, wives didn't work outside the home. They they could do as much voluntary work as they liked, but and um, my mother did a lot <laughs> of, yeah. of uh, voluntary work for you know, the Samaritans and the Red Cross and all sorts of stuff. Um, so. I was raised in in, in this uh, family with one older brother and two older half brothers, and at the age of two, um, I developed bone cancer in my right uh, upper arm, oh my which it was only discovered by chance. Yeah, and um, I, I was whisked along to a GP who realised that something was wrong, and whisked along to uh, a surgeon. Uh, in uh, a big uh, hospital in Manchester, which is where near where I was born, and basically this guy had only just come back from a conference where they had been talking about how to treat this extremely rare condition. Um, at the age of two, I had all of my upper arm taken out and thrown in the bin. I had the um, all of my lower leg transplanted where my upper arm should have been. I had a slice of my poor old mum's hip. Um, sliced off and transplanted into where my lower leg uh, should have been. Um, I was sewn up and put in plaster for nine months. And the only trouble I've ever had since then is that I've got little sort of train tracks running up and down my arm and my leg. But when I was in the military academy, the the um, the, the guards uh, colour 
sergeant major who they're very scary people um uh, so guards uh, sergeant majors they they shout a lot and sure. that sort of stuff yeah. and uh, and he told me that my arm wasn't as straight as it should be well I, well i said well it looks pretty straight to me i'm sorry that's all i can do and that's the only trouble i've ever had of it but but psychologically if you can think about that you know as a two-year-old of course having that Your formative sort of, years having that sort of experience and I couldn't move I couldn't move for nine months I was encased in plaster from um, all of my uh, all of my, my trunk my right arm in a sort of bent position my uh, my right leg sticking out and I have memories of being in plaster of being in hospital of being visited age two so and you know, normally we don't remember stuff um, that happens when we're two but I've got some very clear sort of flashbulb memories of that yeah, time that would be so that, 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 that's the that's the earliest experience of adversity sure. i would say i wonder how that impacted your your family i don't know if you had siblings but sort of the knock-on effect oh, throughout oh, your childhood and also i mean a my mother made this huge sacrifice by mm. sort of giving up a part of her body and having to get, be mm. operated on and come into hospital and i've got these clear clear flashbulb memories of her sort of lying in the, in the bed alongside me when i was recovering mm. um but she also had to you know, I, I was two. My older brother was um, seven at that time, so you know, he needed to, you know, to to go off to school and, and come back from school and all the rest of it. And I'm sure that disrupted that. He, you know, that was very jealous of all the attention that I was getting. Right. Uh, you know, because I was I was I was, I was special. Mm-hmm. Um, because I couldn't, I was I was wrapped in plaster. It meant that I sort of couldn't sort of cuddle and be hugged in the way that you know mm-hmm. you, you might. So all sorts of all sorts of things. Um, and then professionally, it had the effect on me that I wanted to pay back for what I had received. Right. So I wanted actually to become um, uh, not an, orth- well, an orthopedic surgeon initially. Well, that's not surprising because that's what the guy was who operated on me. But then latterly, I wanted to become a, a maxillofacial surgeon. So they're the people who put people's faces together uh, mm. after you know, bad car smashes, uh, you know, after genetic malformations. Um, and I was really impressed by um, by a, a, a film that was around at the time of a Scottish maxillofacial surgeon who had basically rescued someone from the jungles of South America who had been born with this awful, awful, awful sort of facial deformation. Mm. And uh, he brought this guy back to the UK and turned him into, through lots and lots of operations, a you know, very handsome a young man who I think went on to be you know, happy and, um, and I don't know what happened in the end, but I know that the transformation was, and I thought, wow, I want to do that. I mean, so, I never so you, did. Sure, but you wanted to make some kind of impact in the world. I wanted to make an, an impact on the world. And the, and the very strange thing about it, Petra, is what do I do now? What do I specialize in? I specialize in putting people together after trauma. Yeah, but I do it psychologically. psychologically. Yeah, and I don't do, it, don't do it surgically. Yeah, I saw some of your 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 book and um, really about post traumatic stress and um, yeah. sort of and challenging some of the stigma around that, which is really profound work. I think I am absolutely, absolutely anti-stigma. I'm an anti-stigma crusader. I'm an anti-stigma campaigner. 
And part of that is that um, I've had um, psychological problems myself going back, not surprisingly, really. When I had this operation as a kid, mm. the surgeon said to my mum, this is going to affect Jamie one way or another later on. Um, and the way it affected me, whether or not it was the operation or whatever it was, but in my in my 20s, after I came out of um, my, 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 my time in the army, um, and when I was working in, in IT, in, I, was, I was in IT sales and marketing for five years, I was incredibly anxious, incredibly anxious. Panic attacks, I had to stop my car in the middle of bridges, in the middle of tunnels, I had to get off buses, I had to get off trains, I had to sort of rush out of crowded, I was on the local council as a councillor, I had to sort of rush out of crowded council meetings. It was appalling. Um, now, whether or not Actually, that was more to do with the fact that I was just you know, in the wrong place for me. Um, I don't know, or whether or not it was the legacy. But I had that. Um, and then later on, I had, much later on, um, nearly 20 years ago now, I had two really bad uh, episodes of uh, depression. I mean, really very, very bad. I couldn't leave my bed. I wouldn't talk to people. I wouldn't eat. I wouldn't speak. I wouldn't answer the phone. I wouldn't. Um, and I was suicidal and sort of, yeah, pretty actively tried to kill myself a couple of times. Um, and then probably as a result of being on antidepressants for too long, um, I went completely as high as a kite. I had a, 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 a short but but very severe manic episode. I mean, so bad that I was nearly sectioned and put in um, in psychiatric hospital. And you know, not surprisingly, after that, um, uh, as he'd said so all along, really, I had a really good relationship with the psychiatrist who, who, who was working with me. Um, he said, Jamie... Um, I really think you, you you are bipolar, and that completely fitted because that's what I've been all my life. I've been up and down and up and down, but never quite to that extent. But you know, this time, so twenty years ago, in my uh, sort of late thirties, early forties, I was you know, severely, severely depressed and very, very, very manic. Um, and I've been taking and I've been taking lithium ever since, um, which for me has been the wonder drug because it's replaced something in my brain in my brain's chemistry um, that just wasn't there. And um, I love so. how, how open you are about this because I feel like so many people who work in the profession of, of psychology or therapy have this real sort of cloak of secrecy that we are the, the healers or the helpers and aren't necessarily open about their, their own struggle around mental health. I think you have to be Petra, and I think you know. And sometimes, not always, but you know, when it's appropriate, I will share just a little with mm. the people I work with. I so think I it's might important. Just, uh, I, and I might just say, well, actually, um, I've had panic attacks as well, or actually, I've been really depressed as well, and actually, I was nearly put in hospital once. You know, I don't tell everybody. Um, and I was going to say I don't walk around with a badge on, but actually, actually, I do. I, yeah, um, yeah. There is, there, there is a no, but no, physically, I, I do often. I, um, there's a campaign called um, the Only Us campaign, and it was started by a mental health uh, chaplain in East London. Yeah. Um, and our logo is a um, a little face, you know, a smiley face. Except it's not just a smiley face because one eye's got a tear dropping down from it, mm. and and what it, what it, what what we say and what it says is, 
you know, sometimes we're happy, sometimes we're sad, mm-hmm. sometimes we're well, sometimes we're not. There is no them, there is no us, it's only us. And that's exactly what I feel. You know, we, you know, it, it's only us. And, and we're on the same side and there's not, you know, healers and healed because mm. actually the healers have, yeah, I, I very much think of myself as a wounded healer. Um, yeah. and, um, and, and, and I think that's important. It's certainly important for me and important for the work that I do. But sometimes, absolutely not always, sometimes it's good to share, when, when appropriate, it's good to share that with people. I agree because it connects us as humans and I think there's there's a lot of us who get into this type of work because of our own experience and actually when we connect that like there's a much more profound impact if somebody feels connected and feels hope through our journey where we've created successful lives for ourselves because of or despite the adversity that we've faced. Absolutely. I, I, I honestly, I really, really couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, I, I, nothing else to say. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, he agrees. Okay, lovely. Um, and at what point? I'm curious. Just uh, your psychology journey and choosing that sort of path was mm. that like um, uh, sort of uh, at the same time as some of these sort of rock bottoms or, or the mental health crises that was going on, or was it because of that that you then went, "Hey, this might be a way that I can mm. sort of heal or help." Well, no, what happened was that um, uh, I didn't, I'm, 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 I'm very lucky, I'm, 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 I'm pretty bright, I don't have to work very hard to, you know, to get decent exam results. Um, yeah. my, um, my son absolutely takes after me in that regard. He, he completely dropped out of school in his two GC, GCSE years mm-hmm. and uh, just refused to go to school totally. Um, because he said it wasn't doing anything for him and he didn't need the grades, these high grades that the school was pushing him to have to, to go into his chosen career of music. Um, and when it came to exam time, we poured him into a school uniform for the first time in two years, uh, drove him around the school, and he, fo- he got four grade A's and four grade B's without doing any work. <laughs> so, so, he, so he's a bright kid. Um, can I can but, I just say to the parents listening, not every child is going to do that. <laughs> not every child is good. I wouldn't recommend it. And I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't recommend the two years of struggles that we had. But he's now, you know, happily at university in his final year with a girlfriend and guinea pigs and goldfish and all sorts of stuff, and, uh, and he's doing he's doing well. Um, sure. But um, because I wanted to pursue this path into medicine, maxillofacial surgery. Um, I was told that I needed to study physics, chemistry, and biology for my A-levels. Well, um, uh, actually, uh, my, I, I failed chemistry the first time. I'd never done biology, and my physics grade wasn't that great. So, um, Okay, so those so, weren't so my, the easy subjects for you? No, no, they weren't. If I had the choice, I would have done some English, French, Latin, classics, ancient right. Greek, you know, that sort of stuff. Sure. Anyway, so I didn't get the, the grade to med school in the end. Yeah. Um, but, but to be a maxillofacial surgeon, you've got to do medicine and dentistry and medical surgery and dental surgery. And, sure. you, know, you qualify when you're about 40, I think, probably. Yeah. Um, and so I got into dental school, and I was useless at it. I was, <laughs> I, 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 the psychological bits... You know, I remember, you know, working with kids and I would give them a ride up and down on the chair and I would squirt them with the, the air and squirt them with the water and tickle yeah. them with the brush and then put the banana flavored paste on and then quietly slip the drill in, you know. So, <laughs> so you know, the psychological bits and working with adults and taking their teeth out, I could do. But the manual dexterity, I was just rubbish. So I thought, heck, what am I going to do? And I was sort of wandering around the university and I wandered into the psychology department and there was a post from the wall, but I was 
a person with a white coat and a clipboard saying, you know, do you want to be a clinical psychologist? And I thought, wow, if I can you know, just do this and get the white coat and the clipboard, this looks pretty good to me. So I started the course, um, but I couldn't get the funding, um, basically, they basically, because I'd had a couple of years to do dentistry and other stuff. I couldn't get the funding. Mm. But I loved it. I, I, I just did one term you of psychology. found your thing. And I loved it, but I couldn't get the funding. So I thought, well, heck, what am I going to do now? And I was always going to be an army something. I mean, I was army barmy. My father was army. My mother was army. My grandparents were oh, army. Oh, right. I was wondering well, how that happened. Yeah, I played with soldiers as a kid. My great-great-great-grandfather fought at Waterloo and got post-traumatic stress from all the family stories that are handed down. Yeah. So I always wanted to do this army thing, so I just went off and did it. Yeah. Um, and I was, in, I was a young young officer for four years, something like that. And then I sort of hit a ceiling whereby um, I wasn't going to make it to be a regular officer because they already had their quota for my generation. You could either sort of stick around for a few years or, or go. And I thought, well, there's no point sticking around because it's not going to be a career. So I went into, I don't know, I, I, I left and I didn't have a clue. Whatever the whole idea of joining the army was it's going to give me um, not only the experience and everything else, but it was going to give me a good chance to have a good think about what I was going to do afterwards. And I was so busy either sort of um, having a great time in Germany and skiing and riding horses and doing adventure training and, and playing soldiers just a bit of the time, or being in Northern Ireland where I wasn't just playing soldiers, but it was you know, very serious soldiering for a year in a very dangerous place at a very nasty time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't give, a, give a thought to what I was going to do when I came out. And I literally came, there was an organisation that dealt with um, um, people leaving the services, and I said, well, just, just find me something that pays me roughly the same as I'm getting at the moment. So that's how I ended, ended up in um, computer sales and marketing, which oh, takes right. us back to when I started getting these, these panics. Sure, mental health um, issues. And if we just and, um, to jump, to jump back to some of the stories you, you were telling about how your, your mental health was impacted, is there one um, experience or incident that you would sort of title a rock bottom, so to speak? Well... I feel like there was a few there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, it wasn't. It wasn't actually the you know the the was it was it? Yes, I mean, having some major depression wasn't great. But in that period when I was doing this computer sales stuff, and I was I was really good at it, and I kept getting um you know headhunted and promoted, and the salary check got bigger and the company car got bigger and the expense account got bigger and all the rest of it. But I was actually deep down desperately, desperately, desperately unhappy because it just wasn't me. And I could earn as much money as I liked and have the fancy lifestyle and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, That was... uh, And I did go through times... Uh, yeah, because my mood was swinging up and down. I had these panics. Mm. I had I had some very sort of depressed, very 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 dark times then. And I thought, what is life all about? What the heck is going on? So that was certainly one. And then uh, later, when I was really really depressed and trying to kill myself, well, that was that, so that, must, have, that, must, that must have been one as well. Yeah, it must have been. Um, and during those sort of periods, did you? talk to anyone did you ask for help like what was your conditioning around it being okay as a as a young man to to ask for help or to try and figure out what was going on for you very interesting question um 
I was, as I said, raised in a, in a middle class family. I was, uh, I wasn't packed off to boarding school when I was aged eight. I wanted to go. Um, I wanted to go to the same choir school that my my brother had gone to. But I did. I went off to to boarding school aged eight. I remember having a sort of long farewell uh, conversation with my teddy bear because I wasn't allowed to take my teddy bear to school. Mm. Uh, I'm pleased to tell you that my teddy bear is alive and well, and <laughs> I, I still talk to him every day. He's sitting on my, on my chest of drawers. He's a, he's a bit of a, a picture of Dorian Gray, because all the best things that I've done, the, I, I stick the badge on the teddy bear when I finish. So, um, but, and so my parents and I had a very formal, very sort of formal relationship. You know, it's, it wasn't quite sort of handshakes and sir with father, but it wasn't far away from that. Yeah. Um, and I absolutely wasn't conditioned to talk about psychological, emotional experiences at all. And so I recently, I recently interviewed somebody who really talked, went, delved into the boarding school experience at mm. eight, and and it's fascinating the psychological impact that that can have as on, oh, on a young oh, person. Oh, absolutely! And a lot of the people I see now as patients, not a lot, but some of them, one of them in particular, I'm working with at the moment, it's all about that. Right. All about that. Totally it's about the that. The emotionally stunting uh, experience where you do which all is, the which, academics and lose which is, some of the connections. Which is exactly, exactly the sort of language that that person would use. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so you sort of had a double whammy then, um, or or triple quadruple, <laughs> if we think about the army and we think about the mental health issues later. Um, but as far as formative years and you know conditioning around what's okay to talk about and what isn't. I feel like it comes out, like it pops up in either physical health conditions or mental health conditions for yeah. many people in later life. Yeah, absolutely. And so in the army, absolutely we didn't talk. We absolutely didn't talk about you know, psychology and, 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 and mental health um, at the time. You know, and if we did, it was done in this so-called sort of dark, you know, dark humor. Yeah, the, know, a sort of code. Yeah, exactly. So, so we didn't talk about it. Um, which is why you know, later on, when I was a military psychologist and I ended up being head of military uh, psychology for the Ministry of Defence, I would say to people, you should talk about it, you know, which, which is where this book that you referred to came, mm. came, um, came about, the, the battle against stigma. And, you know, don't bottle this up. You should talk about it. You know, you so really what, should. So, so you've, you've come to those conclusions and you obviously do great work in, in challenging stigma. Mm. Um, but I'm curious about the, the middle bit. So we're talking crisis, um, suicidal uh, almost sectioned, that sort of bit. And then I see yeah. the sort of who you are now and the work that you're doing. How did you get through that middle bit? What were the well, steps as far as help well, or, or whatever? Well, but, 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 so by, by, by then things had changed. So um, you know, when I was going through the panics and the downs in my mid-20s, um, I medicalized it. I went to see a GP. I was given, you know, diazepam and all this rubbish, yeah. um, which, which wasn't the answer to anything at all. Um, um, and then I met my wife, my wife to be. Um, okay. In my um, yeah, I, um, in my sort of late late twenties, um, I'd always had a faith. I'd always had a, a, a Christian faith, always. I was a cradle Christian, and that had always been around. It was around at home. It was around at my first boarding school, my second boarding school. It was around in the army. It was even around a bit during those, those dark times. And then I, I just had an epiphany. Age, it was my 30th birthday. I had lots of friends uh, for a party, 
um, to my um, family home um, in in um, in Herefordshire, um, where my mum lived. Um, and you know, I had a swanky car and a huge salary, and I was jetting around the world, and you know, all my friends were there, and I felt the most miserable as I had felt almost ever. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just thought, this is wrong. This, you know, this, this path that I'm on is just wrong. Mm. Um, and I decided within a month or two months of that to throw it all away take a 90% pay cut and go and work as a well, healthcare assistant, they're called now, psychiatric nursing assistant, it was called then, at a psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never looked back. So, so it, was, it, was, it, was that, it was a realisation, it was an epiphany, it was a you know, relationship with a lovely woman who you know, has become my wife of, sort of nearly 30 years now, and mother of our son. Mm-hmm. It was my, my faith. Um, and it was just yeah, yeah, a bit like Francis of Assisi we were talking about earlier yeah, on. Yeah, that's except exactly what lot, I was thinking about. Except it took me a lot longer. Um, and I just suddenly thought, psychology. And I have to go back to psychology. So that's what I did. So you finally thought, you know, fulfillment and happiness are more important than, um, you know, the, the, the cover things of, of money, car, flashy stuff that people could see. Totally, 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 totally. And, you know, and that, 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 that first Christmas, I think my wife and I, she was a girlfriend, we volunteered at you know, this thing called Crisis at Christmas. Yeah. Uh, and I was there throughout it. And my job was um, cleaning the lavatories. And her job was running the secondhand underwear store for men. Um, and it was the best Christmas ever. And we went back to a, a, a little council flat in, in South London where we had a decorated twig and a pasta. <laughs> and it was the yeah. best Christmas ever. <laughs> yeah. And I do think there's something in looking after our own mental health. Um, the, the giving back thing allows us to get out of our own head yeah. um, and, and get away from this, the self-obsession that can come with things like addiction. I speak for myself because I'm nine years sober. Um, and, and mental health issues can just mm. be sort of classed as being stuck in your head a little bit. And when we uh, give back in some way, it sort of releases some of that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, not that I, you know, I wasn't giving when I was an army officer. I was. Sure. I, I had, you know, sort of 20 um, young lads to you know, look after and and, and, yeah. and, and the mother, if you, if you like. Or, you know, even, even you know, when I was a... You know, um, in the computer sales and marketing stuff, you know, I had colleagues. In fact, I met just the other night with, um, we worked together nearly 40 years, a little team of us. So one, so I was the sales guy and one, this, another friend was the technical support guy and another friend was the, you know, customer relations person and we're still friends 40 years later. And, you know, and, and there was giving and there was absolutely, sure. but, but yeah, it, it's, it's very, very, very different. Um, and as I say, as soon as I, made that decision to go back and 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 I knew exactly what I what I wanted to do and what I had to do and you know what qualifications I had to get in what order and I was just absolutely set on on on, on that and and you know through combinations of goodness knows what everything dropped into place and and everything happened in exactly the way that you know it could have done and you built a career around it um who do you yeah. who do you ask for help now um, what, if, if you're struggling now, what are your, your habits or routines around? Oh, honestly, I, I, I've got about, I mean, apart from, Kate, apart from Casey, my wife, 
you know, who I will talk to about anything, and, and I'll talk to my son Ben about anything, and mm. he says wonderfully um, about about Katie and me. He says. Um, I can talk to both of you about anything, and that's something that none of my friends can do, which is, you know, which that's is lovely, amazing. which is lovely. Yeah. But I've got about, um, I've got about four sort of supervisors, five possibly, in yeah. different in different capacities. So I've got a fellow um, clinical psychologist supervisor who I have regular sessions with. I've got someone called a spiritual director or spiritual assistant who I talk about, um, who, who I talk about the you know, the, the religious uh, you know, life and running the religious order. I've got another guy who's a Roman Catholic priest who used to run the Jesuits in the UK, and so he's a sort of mentor as well. Um, and I've got some three or four um, people, in, uh, including Katie, any one of whom I would reach out, to use the current expression, reach out to and say, I need some help which is a profound shift, a profound difference from the boy you described sort of coming out of boarding school and with all that sort of handshake, pat on the back kind of British mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally, totally. And, you know, I'm just absolutely not, not ashamed, embarrassed in any way of, of seeking help. And I have people with expertise in you know, different areas, um, including my wife's expertise of you know, living with me for, you know, <laughs> living together with me for 30 years, yes. who, I, who, I, who I can go to. And it sounds like you've learned along the way that that's a crucial element for um, keeping you mentally healthy and able to work at the sort of su successful level that you're at. It's one of many. It's one of many. There are others. Um, so um, trying to keep um, fit and healthy um, yeah, is another. Uh, and psychologically, actually. Um, and boundaries. Um, Ooh, boundaries. Okay. Well, I'm a boundary... Um, uh, I was going to say I'm a boundary. Uh, I was going to say boundary fascist. Uh, I, 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 uh, on my signature block, uh, on my email, it says um, I only answer, I only handle emails, but in working hours, Monday to Friday. Um, right. But that's but that's part. Of that. So literally, because you know, um, I, I really I run my life from my from my smartphone. Um, eight o'clock in the morning, I turn my four email accounts on. Eight yep. counts in the evening, Monday to Thursday, I turn them all off, or, or six o'clock on a Friday. They're off in the evenings, they're off at weekends. My phone is always on, on answer phone, so if people, um, someone gave me some really good advice. They said, never answer your phone, because that's, you know, that's someone intruding into your time. They said, leave it on voicemail, and you call them back in your time. That's what I do. Um, all my notifications are turned off. So whatever it is, Skype, WhatsApp, whatever, they're all yeah. on the phone, all turned off. It's up to me to check if I've got any uh, you know, WhatsApp messages or you know, messenger messages or texts or emails or whatever. Um, and I, I'm, um, I, mean, I love social media. Um, and, you know, I've got a very active Twitter account with lots of followers and very active LinkedIn account with lots of followers. And, you know, I'm a chatterbox yeah. <laughs> by, na by nature, you might have gathered. And, um, you know, uh, Facebook and the rest of it. Um, I have um, three one-month breaks when I turn 
all of them off. I'm in one at the moment. They're, they're sort of they're tied into you know, the, the, the some religious calendars. So I have, but actually it works out quite well. So I have one in Advent, which is the which is December basically, the run up to Christmas, uh, and it's now switched off until. Um, Epiphany, which is you know, when the wise men came after Christmas, so 6th of January. So the whole of the run-up to Christmas, the whole of Christmas, the whole of after Christmas, my social media are off. I'm just I'm just not there. I've deleted the, all the apps from my phone. Um, well, that's really, I just want to highlight that because that's so profound. I mean, I, a lot of the training I do in corporates around mental health or stress and resilience are about you know, managing your your toxic media intake, whatever that yeah. might look like yeah. for you, yeah. and making some conscious choices about when that's you sort of when you allow that into your life, rather yeah. than the constant sort of attack of all sorts of often negative or, or toxic. Um, oh, it's oh, it's awful, and you know, there've been times when you know, for, because you know, if you if you're in a leadership role, whatever you know, whatever it is, yeah, and not not everybody likes what you're doing. Some people do, but a lot of people don't, and they tell you so. You know, yeah. So so I and I turn them off every weekend anyway. Um, and then Lent, which is the period up to Easter, it goes off. And then August, it goes off. And everything goes I just delete the apps from my from my phone. They're just not there. So, I think I'm going to have to learn something from you there. <laughs> well, I highly recommend it. Yeah. And, if you, and if you take the apps uh, you know, off your, you know, whatever you've got, phone, tablet, yeah. you know, um, laptop, whatever, you just, you're just oblivious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. Everyone else can be you know, chattering away. And, and, and it's just and, – and, and so what I, what I do – is during that time. So now, because normally, um, when they're on, it takes me half an hour in the morning to just you know, very quickly catch up on my notifications and on my, all my social media. Oh, what a waste of time, really. What a waste of time. So so in these months, in December and you know, March and August, or December and April and August, I just run more and I read more and I sleep more. And um uh, it works so, for me. Yeah, so good for for your mental health. Um, for, we we've only got a little bit of time left, and I'm conscious sure. of, of your time. Um, what advice would you give to somebody who's who's struggling? So, if we go back to your absolute rock bottom phases of panic attacks and suicidal feelings and all of that, looking back now with all the wisdom and knowledge that you have, what advice would you give to somebody in that space now? That there is something after that, whether or not you've got a religious belief, as I have. Or whether or not you know you're a fatalist, you know, there is something after. You know what you're what you're going through is just the present, and it may be rooted in the past, but it's the present. It doesn't have to predict the future. I mean, it, it, it might, of course, it might affect the future, but there is something there is something else, and we might not know what it is, but just telling ourselves that you know, the, 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 yeah, this is now, but something comes after now. And so what can the impact of that sort of mindset shift be on someone who's struggling? Well, it, it's hope. It's all about hope. It's all about hope. It's just, you know, about being in that dark, dark, dark tunnel and there being a pinprick of light. And that's, 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 that's all you need. That's all you need to just drag you through just that pinprick of light. So no matter how, how dark things are. And, you know, when I was really depressed, and as I've said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a religious person with a faith. When I was really, really depressed, God was nowhere, absolutely nowhere. Sure. Um, uh-huh. but, but my wife was, and, yeah, you know, and, my son, and my son was. And even though, you know, I felt very, very cut off from that, you know, they were there. And, yeah, so, so there, is, there, is something, there, is, there is something past what we're, what we're going through. 
Um, and, you know, you can say all sorts of things that, you know, things happen for a reason and, you know, good, good, very good things come out of bad things. Bad I, think, thing, yeah. I think all those things are absolutely true. And, you know, adversity makes us stronger. And, you know, I would absolutely say it does. Yeah. Um, would, would you change anything if you could? If you look back at all the stuff that you've been through in life, would you be like, oh, if I could just change that one thing? No, not one single thing. Because I think that it's, it's been bizarre, Petra, actually. Every experience and every job, actually, that I've ever had has, in one way or another, been absolutely, totally the right experience for the job that I didn't know was coming next or the role that I didn't know was coming next. I agree with that. I find, and I even find that every client I've ever worked with, whether it's coaching or counseling or whatever it might be, um, they'll tell me a story or they'll t- you know, tell me something that they've been through. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, yeah, there was that one experience or that time in my life that allows me to fully be empathetic with what you're going through right yeah. now. Yeah, which surprise still surprises me because I'm like, oh my god, there was that one horrific experience I went through, which is allowing me to fully get, you know, what might be going on for you. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 so everything, you know, no, no, no matter what it, what it was, and and there's been, been a lot of crap around that has, yeah, exactly, absolutely <laughs> has. Um, you know, I, I lost uh, my, one of my um, half brothers died. Tragically, 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 you know, of malaria after his honeymoon. You know, that's that wasn't good. That really wasn't good. And you know, all sorts of all sorts of other things. There've been some really rubbishy things. Um, but no, I wouldn't have changed any, anything at all. Really. Well, it sounds like you're able to really channel everything that you've been through in in the work that you do in a sort of hopeful viewpoint on the world. Well, yeah, not just through the work that I do. I mean, I, I, I um, in um, my, as I mentioned, my wife is a priest, so in our church, I, you know, I lead the Sunday school and run the youth group, and you know, work with these kids in a very, very you know, disadvantaged part of South London, uh, and love it, absolutely love it, and with my work in the Franciscans. Um, actually, it's probably the most difficult organisation that I've ever had to run, ever. Um, you know, much more difficult than the you know, university research institutes or professional psychology associations or or troops of you know, young you know, tank, <laughs> tank, tank crew. It's far more difficult. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I love it, even, even though it sometimes drives me completely mad. But it's like you feel fully alive. Like some of my first experiences of working with young offenders and absolute frontline, my salary was the worst it's ever been. But um, the, the feeling of being alive and a sense of purpose was the greatest. I feel absolutely, totally alive. And in a second now, I'm going to be going off to, to um, the clinic to see some people this morning. Um, and on my way, I'll be smiling at people, um, and they smile back, even if they're looking really miserable. And on my way, I'll be encountering homeless people and you know, giving them you know, bits of money and buying them food and stuff. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're, we're, as far as we know, we are only here once, so let's make the best of it. Oh, I love that. Um, and on, on that note, we'll close. But where can people find you on, on social media if they want to connect? You won't be able to find me until... Um, oh, January, yeah, of course. So next until, year, if people want to Jan- find you. <laughs> January the 6th. Um, but I'm on Twitter. I'm on at Prof, Jamie, Prof for Professor Jamie for Jamie, HH for Hacker Hughes. 
um, at Prof Jamie HH. Um, my Facebook is is a, is a Franciscans only, so unless you're a Franciscan, you can't you, you can't speak to me. Fair <laughs> it's, a, it's a subtle subtle attempt at converting people. You see, <laughs> That's uh, and, I, and I'm on LinkedIn just as me, Jamie Hughes. Lovely. We will add that into the show notes so people can connect with you in the new year if they want to. Um, Professor Jamie, thank you so much for your time. It's so refreshing to hear someone in your profession talking so frankly and real about their, their mental health and their struggles with adversity. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Petra. Thank you so much for listening. If something helped you today, please do share this episode with a friend and let them know that they are not alone. I know that for me, isolation kept me stuck much longer than I needed to be. So let's practice courage and talk to someone about what's going on, as that's the first step to making life amazing. Check out my website, petravelsboer.com, for your free Kickstarter plan, which will teach you to turn your biggest weaknesses into your greatest strengths. Join the community of people who are changing the way they view life's challenges and living life to the full. Until next time, goodbye.